The sermon text this morning will be Romans chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. When you think of unity, we've been hitting that in the past few weeks, when you think about unity in the church, when you think about unity in the world, you think about sameness, you think about uniformity. When you look at political parties, you look at other organizations, when they talk about unity, it's sameness, that differences are not well tolerated. But when you look at unity in the church, you think of oneness. Oneness, there's, there's a unity within a diversity. You see that in marriage, right, between the male and female that become one. You see it in the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, one and yet different. Well, the church is the same. We are to be different, and yet we're to be one. You know, when Carol and I were preparing to go overseas uh, to Austria, uh, they put us in a home, a four-bedroom home in Prospect Heights outside of Chicago. Uh, Carol and I, we just had the two girls at the time, but we joined with five other adults that we had never met before, didn't even know their names. And we were asked to live with them for about six months. That's right, same home, using the same bathroom, same kitchen, having meals together each day, going to classes together each day. I mean, it was, we had people from all over the country, outside the country, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different educations, different theological understandings. Some were from just heavily charismatic all the way to the conservative fundamentalist. And we're all living together. I mean, it, it provided some unique opportunities for some hilarious moments, but also some points of real tension and stress that we had to walk through. Well, this is what Paul's walking us through. You know, he calls us to welcome one another. Now, if you remember in chapter 14, he said the same thing. He says, welcome one another and don't quarrel over differences. Don't quarrel over opinions. And in other words, Paul is like this, he's the apostle. He's kind of the captain of this, of this church expanding, and he's trying to get us uh, for the church to work through their differences in a way that there would be unity and glory without smashing down the differences that the culture wants to do. Now, he's been talking about the obligation of the strong to bear with the failings of the weak. But you see in our text, he changes it up. He backs up. He says, no, I want you to welcome each other. He's not talking about the, strain, the strong or the weak. He's talking about both that we are to welcome each other. So what Paul's going to do in this text, he gives us a principle of unity. In other words, he says, this is what we are to be doing, to welcoming each other just as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. We're to do that, and he's going to give us the principle, but then he's going to put it 
in the plan of God. He's going to go from, global, or from local to global. So he's going to show us this big panoramic view of what God's doing. And, and then he's going to pray for us. So think of three Ps. He's going to give us a, he's going to, um, give us a principle. He's going to give us God's plan. And then he's going to pray. So look with me in seven, because this is a principle. It's a simple principle to understand, hard to do. He says, welcome one another, just as Christ has welcomed us to the glory of the Father. Now, you know what that welcome means. We've hit it a number of times. It doesn't mean I'm tolerating or I'm putting up with people or I'm kind of rolling my eyes at their uniqueness and their quirkiness. To welcome someone means uh, to let them draw near to you that they have close proximity to your heart. You have feelings towards them like you do the family. Uh, to welcome one another is to draw them close. Now, it's obvious the context is to welcome people that are different than you, not the same. The world welcomes people that are like them. That's nothing Christian about that. The call is to welcome those different than you, perhaps different race, different age, a different background, different views on schooling, different views on food, different views on media, different views on any kind of thing. These non-essential secondary issues, they're not unimportant per se, but they don't press against the gospel. They don't press to the central issues of what we believe. He says, welcome one another. Now, you know the context here by now. Paul's talking to a church that, that has a bigger cultural difference than we do, Jew and a Gentile. I mean, they wouldn't even eat together. I mean, the Jews had their dietary restrictions. They wouldn't have wine with their meal. The Gentiles weren't worried about what they're eating as much. They weren't worried about the wine. They weren't worried about special days. There were some cultural differences. They were having trouble just having a meal together. And yet Paul's calling them for them to be one. Now, hear me clearly. Paul's not asking for the Jew to become a Gentile. And he's not asking for the Gentile to become a Jew. He's not asking for sameness. He's asking for acceptance that you would welcome one another. But notice what he says. He says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So Paul is not naive. He knows the struggle and the difficulty we have with welcoming people that are different. Perhaps different just in your quirkiness of personality. Just, you know, you don't fit right with them. So it's hard to, he says, no, welcome them as different as they are, wherever they're different, welcome them as Christ has welcomed you. How did Christ welcome you? Well, he welcomed you by grace. He welcomed you in spite of your sinfulness, your brokenness. He has welcomed you regarding, uh, regardless of your confusion, your difference. I mean, the difference between Christ and us and us with one another is profound that we're to welcome as Christ. Now, not just in the manner of welcoming, he welcomed us with kindness, with mercy and grace, but also because of it. In other words, if you understand that he has welcomed you in spite of who you really are, not what you display, but who you are in attitude and in those deep thoughts, or as Nathaniel prayed, those secret sins that nobody knows about. And he welcomed us by grace. Then he says, you ought to. You have an obligation to welcome one another. And we're not doing this just so that the place is a friendlier place to be. We welcome one another for the glory of God. For the glory of God. In other words, for his honor, for his sake. Now, what do I mean by that? 
How do you welcome somebody for the glory of God? Well, think about it for a minute. When Christ welcomed us, I mean, he took us to himself with all of our sin and all of our shame. We didn't dress ourselves and clean ourselves up. He took us in our shame. What do we say about God? Wow, he must be really merciful. He took Tom Mercer. He took Tom Mercer with his just freight cars of sin. He took him. He forgave him. He accepted him. He loves him. He must be a good God. He must be kind. He must be generous. He must be patient. In other words, when we accept one another to the glory of God, we're imaging the character of God by our willingness to be patient, to be kind, to be loving. We show the world what the world doesn't see. They don't accept people with differences. You have to be the same. And you have to conform either by pressure of outside force or pressure to get in the ring. You've got to be like them. But it displays the generosity of God. So the principle of this church is simple. We're to be welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us for the glory of God. Now, how do I do this? I mean, how do, this is a difficult thing to do. We, we, I see, we all go to those people that we know. We go to those people that we feel comfortable with. How do we get over the distaste of welcoming, really drawing close, developing friendships with people who are different than us? Well, I would say first, consider how we welcomed you. I mean, consider how he could have treated you. Uh, consider what he could have said to you. I mean, Christians, at a minimum, are intellectually honest with ourselves, We've got to admit there's not a lot in there that would make us worthy in our own merit. Aren't you glad that God doesn't operate on a system of meritocracy? I mean, can you imagine if you had to produce to somehow receive the favor of God? The fact that he has embraced us by grace? He has given us favor just because he's loving and kind? And that is to be considered, to be thought about that it might lead us to be accepting of others. So how do we do it? Well, consider your own coming to Christ. It was all of grace. And I would say this too, and this is really an incredible thing about the Christian faith. If you're here and you're not a Christian or you've wondered about the Christian faith, uh, this is the beauty. The Christian faith does not teach you have to give up sleeping with your girlfriend and, and stop drinking and change your friends and cut your hair and start wearing new clothes. You don't have to better yourself before you come to Christ. You come to Christ with all of your sin. That's why we sing so often, come ye sinners. Think about the words that you were singing. I love the words. Come, you sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. He doesn't ask you to get cleaned up to come to him. He's the one that has to clean you up. He says, let not conscience make you linger. That's what happens. Our conscience begins to, I can't go to God. What I just viewed, what I just did, what I just said, I, I got to read my Bible for a week. I've got to go to church for three weeks in a row before I come to God. He says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness finally dream. This idea of, of dreaming, one day I'll be ready to see God. He says, all that he requires as fitness is to know your need of him. He says, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. This is the glorious thing about the Christian faith. It's so different 
Every other faith requires you to produce, to receive. Here you receive and then produce. You go to him. This is the beauty. If you're not a Christian, this is how we come. This is how we become a Christian. God, you see me. I'm filled. I'm laden with loss. Would you heal me? Would you change me? That's the beauty of this, welcoming one another. That's how we've been welcomed by Christ. This is how we welcome one another. So this is how you do it, but where you do it? Where should you welcome one another? Well, not surprisingly, probably, I would say the church. Because the church is the only place that you come on a regular basis and hang out with people that you would not regularly hang out with. It's the only place you do it. You get to choose all all your other pockets of friendships. The church, you don't. The church is the one place that you come. Now listen, if you look around and all the relationships that you have with people are the same age, temperament, style, experience, and background, I don't think you're getting the radical nature of this command. I don't think you're getting it. If you consider how radical it was for you to be accepted by Jesus, if you get that, then for you to draw near to people wildly different than you, it wouldn't even compare. It wouldn't even compare. I mean, think about it. I I know most of you here as Christians, you want to glorify God. I believe that. And we mistakenly think that to glorify God, we've got to do something spectacular for God. We've got to give a lot of money, or we've got to go on a trip and missions, or go into ministry, or go into missions full time. You know what's great about this text? You know how to glorify God? Just welcome somebody different than you. Just, just, that's all he said. It glorifies God. What do I mean by this? What will your agenda be to follow this command? Could I give you an idea? Could you in the next month, for example, just go out to coffee or go out to lunch after a service with somebody that's different than you? Just different, maybe they're different in age, different in style, different in education, different in color, just different than you. Just go and then talk about how did they come to know God? What did God do to reveal himself? Just ask these questions. You know, Carol and I learned this living overseas for a couple of years. Uh, we weren't with anybody that was like us. They were different color. They were different language. They were different culture. They had different set of religious traditions and taboos. And yet we found this oneness in Christ that was profound. It, it, it busts through all the, even through the language barriers of trying to communicate with one another. There was a oneness there that we shared as we spoke about the nature of Jesus Christ. So so the principle of unity for us, if we are a church, as a church, are going to grow in oneness, it's we've got to welcome one another. We have to bust up those circles. Now, I know I've been hitting this for a number of weeks, only because he has. He took a chapter and a half to do it. You know, the propitiation was in about five verses, but unity here, he's got about a chapter and a half in right now. Uh, so it's a big deal. It's a, it's a big principle that he has. So that's the principle. Welcome one another. What is your agenda going to be to walk out that command and to be obedient to it? But, but Paul doesn't stop there. And this is what I love about Paul. He builds these arguments like stairs. He now sets that, that call to be one, to welcome one another. He sets that call into the plan of God. So he steps back from a local. I'm talking to this local church in Rome, Italy. You've got to welcome one another. And then he says, let me show you what God's doing here on a cosmic level. Let me show you what God's doing on a, 
on a, on a massive level. The plan of God is to reconcile all humanity, all people, all nations to himself in and under Christ. That's the plan of God. He's going to bring about a collection of nations for his glory that love one another who maintain their differences. That's what he's going to do. And you see Paul go to this. So he's setting this principle of unity in the bigger plan of God. Look with me in verse 8. In verse 8 he says, I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs. So what he's doing here, he's got a group of, of Jewish and Gentile Christians in this church. And he's saying this, he's saying that God has sent Christ. Christ has become a man. He's entered in, by flesh, entered into our world, into a culture, a culture with distinctives, and he sent him as a servant to serve the Jews, circumcision, the circumcised, is a reference to the Jews. You saw that back in chapter 4, because it refers to the circumcision being a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham. So he sent Jesus to serve the circumcised. In other words, Jesus came to fulfill the promise that God gave to Abraham. So remember in your Bibles, Genesis 12:1. that's a big chapter in the Bible. Because that's a chapter in the Bible where God lays out promises to these patriarchs. Patriarchs are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he promises to them, listen, I'm going to raise up a people. And I'm going to save them for the glory of my name. And through them, I'm going to save and reconcile the world to myself to show my glory and to show my goodness. It's a key chapter. So sending Jesus is fulfilling the promise that he made all the way back in Romans chapter in Genesis chapter 12 that from Abraham a seed or a son would come. And this son would also be the son of David. And when he comes, he's going to establish a kingdom, and he's going to serve them by laying down his life, Isaiah 53, taking upon himself our sins, that he might reconcile us to God through forgiveness and adoption. We would be one family before God. That's how he was going to retrieve a people that were lost in Genesis 3. That's how he was going to redeem the dilemma that we all face with our sin and brokenness. So God is fulfilling his promises but there's more tucked in that promise. Because look in verse 9. In verse 9 he says, And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. When you see Gentiles there, just think nations. That's all it is. It's ethne or ethnicities. So just think nations. But he says, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. So Jesus has come not just to save the Israel people, the people of Israel, but through the nation of Israel is going to come the gospel and a servant to save all the nations, all the nations, that they might glorify God. And it's interesting, you know, Abraham was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. So the father of the Jews was a Gentile. And this Gentile was chosen to bring forth a nation that would save the nations. What I'm saying is that there was not a new plan to save the Gentiles. It was all part of the same plan. God's plan was to bring about a people, saving them. Through them would come Christ who would save the nations. It's all part of the same plan. So in other words, Jew and Gentile enter into the same kingdom 
by the same servant Savior Jesus, through the same thing, faith, toward the, uh, to be saved from the same enemy, sin, so that we can serve the same God together. It was always that way. It wasn't like the Jews crucified Jesus and they rejected the plan, so we're going to go to the Gentiles now. It was always, the Gentiles were always part of, enfolded, included in the plan. And that's why Paul quotes all those Old Testament verses. You remember how he kept running through this? Look at, look at the verses with me in verse 9, in the second half of 9. He says, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. That's David from Psalm 18. David is saying, yes, I'm going to praise you, God, from among the Gentiles. It's a picture of what God's doing. Or the next one, and to sing to your name, that comes from 2 Samuel. That we're all going to sing to your name. All of us are going to join in worship of God. Verse 10, he quotes Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. In other words, here Moses is kind of looking down time, and he's saying, there's going to be a time. He's calling the Gentiles, rejoice with his people. You'll both be together as one, rejoice in God. Look in verse 11, he quotes Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol you. So here again is a time where all the nations are gathered together. Look at verse 12, he quotes Isaiah 11. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And now Paul goes to Isaiah, and he says, to, he says about Isaiah that this root of Jesse was the son of Abraham, the son of David, to establish a kingdom, not over Israel, but over all the nations. So do you see what Paul's doing here? Paul is drawing from the Old Testament law. He's drawing from the Old Testament prophets. He's drawing from the Old Testament writings. And he's saying it's in there throughout your scriptures. And so he takes this and he says to the Roman church, he says, listen, church, you Jew, you Gentiles, nobody has preference over the other. Yes, you are very different, but you're part of the same plan. Therefore, welcome one another. Welcome one another, just as I have welcomed you. And it will be for my glory. So this is a, this is a word for you as a Christian. If you're a Christian here, the word for you is, is, do you marvel over the mercy of God that you as a Gentile, as the nations, do you marvel over his mercy? Do you ever marvel over Jesus came not as a king, but as a servant? to serve us? Do you marvel over the fact that you once were not a people, but now you are? I mean, are you overwhelmed over the amazing grace that God has given to us? I, I think a lot of times we're so close to the gospel and we hear it so much that we, we don't get it. We really don't get it. We, we're not overwhelmed. It's kind of like when you go on a mission trip and you maybe go to a third world country. And, and what do you do? You see how they live, and you see the struggles that they face. The average age of people dying in this country will be 30 years before yours in this country. And when you come back, what do you generally think? Whew, thank the Lord, I'm back. I can turn on the tap and drink the water. I can eat food, I can go. You are overwhelmed. This is what we have to do. We have to remind ourselves. This is the beauty of the table that we celebrate today. 
We celebrate this table. You hear the gospel day in and day out, week in, definitely, and week out. But here you get to see the gospel. You actually are going to eat the gospel. You're going to ingest the gospel. You're going to remind yourselves as you see everybody else coming to the front saying, I need the gospel. I am thankful. It's to lead us to be people of worship. That's what he's saying here. All the Gentiles will extol. He'll extol. They'll exalt. They'll sing. They'll come together. We're part of such a big plan of God. And our welcoming one another fits like a cog into this beautiful wheel of what God is doing, bringing people to himself. But it's not just a word to you as a Christian. It's also a word to us as the church. I I mean, God saves people and then collects them together. You know, most, many, many scholars will say Romans is about simply how uh, man or woman is reconciled to God. And we look at Romans in a very individualistic way. How do I get right with God so I can be with God forever? But there's this subterranean thought throughout the book of Romans. It's not about the individual, it's about the church. It's about gathering people together to display his glory. It's about saving people, calling them together to live as one body where they welcome each other, they display a unity so that the world will see a picture of what heaven will be like. There will be differences in heaven, but we, they won't trouble us because we're going to be with the one. We're going to see him and become like him, but there'll be differences, but we'll live with them. And in fact, you know what? We'll celebrate them. But it, But the church is to be doing that now. We're the ones giving the foretaste of heaven. We're the ones that as we love and care for one another, the world sees what's different about them. And this becomes, we become, if you will, like a dim little light in a dark place. This is what heaven should be like. Now I know for many of you, when you come out of certain church backgrounds, I'm like talking in German right now. But, but, but this is the way it's supposed to be. Full disclosure of heaven to people. This is why the temporal differences of age or race or physicality or position in life or money or education, it seems so paltry when you look at it in light of the glory of God reconciling all nations to himself. The differences that separate you from one another, they are nothing when you look at the glory of God, what he's doing. I think there's also here, not just a word to you as a Christian and us as a church, but I think there's a word to the non-Christian. There's a, there's a word to the world, if you will. You know, many people will accuse the church of arrogance, of religious imperialism or Christian colonialism, because we're saying that only Jesus can save and, and all have to have faith in Jesus Christ. And they see that as the epitome of arrogance. Let me remind you, It's simply God saying in his word, I'm going to collect all the nations in Christ. That Christ will be the unifier of humanity. There is no philosophical position or party. There is no educational or ideological track that can ever reconcile people. I remember hearing an intellectual of Britain say multiculturalism has failed. We tried, to, we tried to bring everybody together and let everybody's preferences mix together. Guess what? They don't want it. It takes the power of the gospel to bring us together in differences that we might be one. 
This is why we're, this is the basis of missions. This is why we prayed for, for Carrie and Sarah and Catherine. This is the basis of mission, is we know that only in Christ can the world be made one in unity as the new people of God. This is why we fast. You know, you have these inserts in your bulletin. Where we've been fasting, if you don't remember, and if you're plugging in now at the 10th month, then I'm just, I'm tempted to ask, where have you been? But it, we've, been, we've been fasting the second Tuesday of every month from Monday night through Tuesday. So you have dinner. You, you don't eat until you break the fast on Tuesday evening. Of course, unless you have health issues and then there are other ways to fast. The point of fasting is really just to remind ourselves of how needy we are for God. We can't even go a day without food. How are we going to go without breath? We need God not just to live physically. We need God to live spiritually. And so fasting is a long time tradition of the Christian church to remind ourselves of the greatness of God and how only he can truly feed us. And so we fast for more of God. And we have fasted for loving that we might love God's glory in a greater measure. We are fasting to love God's people more. But now in this last four months, in this last third of the year, we're fasting for the nations. And here, we're fasting, we're longing to see that God would be worshipped among all peoples. That's what we want. Psalm 67 is about that. And so join with me. I, I am fasting this week, and I would invite you to join with me to fast that some from among this church will go to the nations. Some of you sitting in front of me will get up and go to the nations with the gospel. I'm fasting for all of us to have a concern for the nations because that is the plan of God. He's going to bring us together in the Son to himself as his new family. But only those in the Son will be part of that family. So we have a principle given to us in verse 7. We see it set within the plan of God that he will unite all peoples in 8 to 12. And then you see, what does Paul do? At the very end, this is for many people, the end of Romans, the rest of Romans, we're going to deal with some mission stuff and then some uh, you know, personal matters of Paul in chapter 16. But what's he do? He prays. He prays at the very end of this section. Look with me in 13. This is his second prayer. He says this. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul knows what is before this church, and so he begins to pray. Last week he prayed for the God of encouragement and endurance to help us be and walk in unity. Now he's praying to the God of hope that we might walk in unity, in joy and peace. He's going to God for joy and peace. Joy and peace, if you remember, it was the mark of the kingdom back in chapter 14. Back in chapter 14, we read, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Why are we differing over those things? It doesn't have to do with the kingdom. He says, but the kingdom is of righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. So he's tapping back into that. And he's praying that we would have joy and peace. Do you pray that way, by the way? Do you ever just pray, God, would you give us joy and peace? The joy that comes from being reconciled to God, the peace with brothers because, and sisters because we have mutually been reconciled. He prays, but notice what he says. He says, may the God of hope fill them with joy and peace in believing. We are called to believe. You know, this is the human, this is the interplay between human action and divine sovereignty. We do pray for this. We do believe. What are we believing in? Well, we're believing in Christ, 
that he has died and been raised. We believe that he's coming again. We believe we have a hope. That's why he's the God of hope. We pray believing that he will give us joy and peace. And we ask through the Spirit. The Spirit of God must bring that joy and peace, helping us to abound in hope. You know, the world hopes. Everybody hopes. Hope is just that looking forward to something that will give me happiness. Right? Everybody hopes. Uh, You may hope over a new job. If I just get a new job, then I'll be happy. Or or we hope getting a new relationship or finding a relationship. Or we hope in the kids growing up and not being so demanding. Or Or we hope in a better position in life. Or we hope because we have some health crises. And if that happens, then I'll be happy. That's what the world does. But all those things are transitory. They're all temporal. They're all subject. They're all precarious. He says, we go to the God of hope. We have hope. Do you notice in verse 11 it says, this Jesus will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Our hope is in Christ. All that he's done for us. All that he is to us. Where is your greatest hope? I mean, if you had to say, what do you hope for most? Are you hoping for that day? I mean, are are you hoping to be filled with the spirit that you might have joy and peace? Are you hoping to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are you hoping to see him? Are you hoping to experience all that he has for us? This is the burden of the Christian, if there's a burden. The burden is to God, when will I see your face? When will you redeem me in full measure? When will you make all the sadness go away? When will we see you? That's the hope we have. It's an incredible hope. You notice that we sang, um, I believe in God, and it was kind of the creed, the creed that we say after communion. Um, This is a Trinitarian prayer. You know, we accept one another because Christ has accepted us. Uh, we, we, we find our unity in the plan of God the Father who has brought forth and is bringing together all peoples and all nations. And we seek to walk in this by the power of the Spirit. It's a Trinitarian prayer. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, but it's all through the Bible. It's just through the Bible and the God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So we have to welcome each other as Christ has welcomed us for his glory. As you do that, you'll find yourself within the perfect plan of God. And as you find yourself in the plan of God, let us continue. When was the last time you prayed for the unity of this church? I asked you that last week. Let me ask you again. Have you prayed? Will you pray? Will you pray for us that we would be welcoming one another? that we would be welcoming one another in the way and because Christ has welcomed us? And will you do this for the glory of God? You want to glorify God this week? This is a way to do it. Let me just pray for us, and then I'll try to orient us to the table.